We're gonna get started. Happy Labor Day weekend. Hopefully you're enjoying the time, enjoy your day off tomorrow. I'm sure some of you have to work, but hopefully get a little bit of time of rest and relaxation this weekend. As you're kind of getting settled, I do want to encourage you to come back out tonight to our prayer and worship and fellowship. Like Todd said, this is the last one of the summer where we cook out afterwards and we have big plans for that. So, um, so come back out. That's always a great time of, of worship, of fellowship together. And, but more than that, man, it's a time that we can express our dependence upon the Lord as we pray. And so we'll be praying for things around the church and some of the things we have um, going on. And so, um, so come back out. I, I hope you'll make that a priority tonight. I know, I know that you won't regret it. And then, and then come to a life group this Wednesday night. Um, man, you, you got introduced to all of our leaders. And, and so if you haven't been coming, I really encourage you. Now's the, now's the perfect time to join. Um, so get started on that. You won't regret that as well. But this morning, we're starting something new. We're starting a new, uh, very quick four-week series I've titled Issues Facing the Church. And so I've been praying about this for a while, and, and so we, we, we're going to get kicked off and get started on that this week. And so we've been going, as if you've been around, you know we've been going through the book of Acts. And so we'll, we'll get back to that once we get past Certainty Conference. But um, we took a break after we finished chapter 7. It's kind of a natural breaking point in that book. And so I just wanted to take some time to set aside to hit what I believe are some of the important topics the church as a whole uh, is dealing with today. And we're going to talk about, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but we're going to talk about four wars that we are facing in the church over these next few weeks. So we're going to talk today about a worldview war, and we'll talk about a culture war, we'll talk about a family war, and then we'll talk about the next generation's war leading to Certainty Conference. And, and I use that word war intentionally, because the truth is when it comes to the Christian life, we are certainly in a war. And we face that war on many fronts, four of which we're going to study in, in some detail in this series. And while I think it's probably true that, that our eyes have been more opened over the last you know, three years or so to, to our enemy and his attack, I still believe that generally we've been lulled to sleep over the reality of spiritual battle. And what that means and what that looks like in our life. But make no mistake about it, the church is up against a formidable opponent. And as part of the church, as members thereof, that means we individually and collectively as a body are up against a formidable opponent. And our enemy, the devil, is actively fighting. He's actively fighting against us. And if we don't fight back, at least in this earth we lose. Now, we know that we're ultimately going to win. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the victory in Christ. But there's some things that our Savior expects of us while we live on this earth, the short time we have in this vapor of a life. And so if we don't fight back, we lose the opportunities we have here. We don't have the option of sitting on the sideline and just watching the war unfold. That's not how it works. You need to accept the challenge and engage in the battle. And as most of you are aware, there are many verses in Scripture where this war analogy is made. I, I'm not making it up. It actually comes from the Bible. Christians are compared to soldiers many places. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 3 and 4, Paul says this to his disciple Timothy. He says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this, this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And that's what we are. Philemon chapter 1 verse 2 says, And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. And so, you know, we're called various things in Scripture, and as we work together, we're fellow laborers, but we're also fellow soldiers. And this type of language is used again and again in Scripture. And as I was alluding to a second ago, when it comes to fighting and, and the war on these various fronts on behalf of the Lord, it's something to which we've been called. It's, it's not presented as optional. Like I said, we don't get to sit on the sidelines. Now, we do all have a free will. But again, sitting out equals losing. 
1 Timothy 6, verse 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. It's not presented as optional. That's presented as a command. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So for the Christian, this fight that is before us is something that the Lord assumes we're going to partake in. And today we're going to be talking about fighting the war in our lives and our families over our worldview. And it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there, but we're going to base our study out of Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn, be turning there if you haven't already. Colossians chapter 1. And this series is going to be a little bit different than the way we attack um, Sunday mornings normally. Now, I'm st- we'll always have a passage. We'll always break down that passage. We'll always do that. But we'll be moving around. We won't always be in the book of Colossians. We'll be moving around. Um, and we're, we'll be covering, you know, a little bit. I'm going to do some background before we get into even Colossians on worldview and what it means and what we're up against and what it looks like and that, that sort of thing. So a little bit different than what we normally do. So let's open, before we get into the details, let's open up in a word of prayer and ask God to lead us in our time and in his word together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We're thankful to be here. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it does give us the answers in everything that we're looking for in life. And as we come up against our enemy and how he attacks us, Lord, you give us not only the armor to protect us, the weapons to fight back, but Lord, you give us the battle plan. Lord, we just have to be obedient to it. And so I just pray that you show us that this morning um, and how we view this life and where we allow our mind to go and allow what we allow to think about that leads us to actions. And I pray that, that we all will analyze ourselves this morning and make sure we're doing that according to your word. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it is honoring and glorifying to you as this entire service should be, Lord. Uh, be glorified in it. Thank you um, just for giving us the opportunity to meet together today. We love you. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So today we're going to tackle the topic of worldview. And worldview is sort of a buzzword. It's, it's been around actually for quite some time, but really only gained popularity in modern use over the last hundred years or so. There was a, a, an essay written by a German philosopher, Wil, Wilhelm Delphi, in 1911 that was titled The Types of Worldviews um, According to Metaphysics, and doesn't, that doesn't matter at all. But that's really where, what prompted kind of its, its popularity in modern usage. The word itself is, is, is self-defining. In that, and I put this in your outline sheet, this is, you can, should be able to fill in the blank before it's even listed. But a world view is the way in which a person views the world. Very profound, I know. But it's our lens through which we see the world. And the events occurring in the world, and listen, this is the key. It is how we view the world and the events occurring in the world in order to explain our existence and purpose. So that's what worldview does, is it helps explain existence and purpose. So your worldview functions as sort of eyeglasses in that way. It's how you see the world. So you, you know, you've always heard the example of rose-colored glasses, right? So if you have a pair of rose-colored glasses on, you see the world through a rose-colored tint. And that's used metaphorically, you know, more even than literally. But that's what worldview is like. Or let me describe it this way. It's a bit like a GPS system. It orients you to where you are in relation to everything that's going on around you. And it helps point you to where you're headed and how you need to get there and kind of the landmarks along the way. I've also heard it described like a puzzle or the picture, right? A puzzle makes a picture. And so life throws something at you. Maybe it's an event, maybe it's a piece of information, it's an idea, it's a tragedy, whatever it is. And your worldview defines where that fits in your world. Just like as you pick up a piece of a puzzle, you look and figure out where that fits in the overall picture. So in one sense, everybody's worldview is unique. But if you study out worldview, you will find that social scientists have grouped worldviews together into larger headings, right? So, for example, 
the social scientists would say that there are people that have a religious worldview. And those people believe in a God, and they adhere to a religious set of beliefs, and whatever those beliefs are, they dictate one's behavior and lifestyle. Right? So it's how you view the world and how you explain your purpose and your existence. So they might say that others have a materialistic worldview, where you view life as simply an opportunity to gain as much money and as many possessions as you can. That's what your life is about. So your decisions and your primary behavior is built around that end. Still others might have what they would call a hedonistic worldview, where life is all about me and my pleasure. And that pleasure is the only thing that has intrinsic value in this life. So, eat, drink, and be merry. Run after sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Social scientists would also describe a relativistic worldview, where a person subscribes to relativism that states there's no objective standard for right and wrong because truth is relative. It's based on culture, it's based on environment, it's based on historical context. So what's right for you isn't necessarily right for me. And what you may think is moral or amoral, I may not think that. So you be you, and I'll be me. And by the way, that is some of the worst advice you can receive in this life. <laughs> you be you, that's a bad thing. We're going to talk about it. There are many more. There are many more. Those are just a few examples. So I just want you to understand what we're talking about. Now, even though social scientists have created these larger groupings for worldview, the truth is most people kind of pick and choose, right? They may be predominantly religious or materialistic or hedonistic or relativistic, but not always. It's more nuanced than that. So it can be difficult to figure out or ascertain the precise worldview of a given individual if you look at it the way sociology does. But listen, here's the thing. We're not going to do that. <laughs> the Bible actually simplifies it all. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what social scientists or sociology says. It only matters what the Bible says. And according to the Bible, there are only two worldviews. There are two. doesn't matter all the groupings. They fall into two. It's secular humanism versus biblical Christianity. That's what we're talking about. The way the Bible puts it is it's God's way or man's way. It's God's way or man's way, just like it's creation or evolution, just like it's faith or nihilism, just like it's grace or works, just like it's Antioch or Alexandria going to fall into two groups. And of course we see this scripturally. Proverbs 12:15 shows us the two ways. Proverbs 12:15 says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. So there is the way of the fool and there is the way of counsel. And the counsel being described in Proverbs 12:15 is defined in Proverbs 19:21. This says there are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. So that counsel in Proverbs 12:15 is the counsel of the Lord, which of course is found today in one place. It's found today in the word of God. So again, it's man's way versus God's way. It's man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. That is what we're talking about. And the Bible has a lot to say about man's way. Proverbs 14:12 says, "There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death." There's a way that seemeth right, but it's not right. That's man's way. God's way is the only right way. So that you're either going to build your life on God's way, or you're going to go your own way. And it's based on man's wisdom and it's based on human logic and thinking. You're either going to build your life on God's word, on the rock of Jesus Christ, or you're going to build it on your own, on, on how you best think you can figure it out. We see this in Matthew chapter 7. 
verses 24 through 27, Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew. That's the things of life that, that, we, uh, that, we, that occur to us or around us, and we have to figure out how they place. And when those things come and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And when your biblical world, if you have a biblical worldview based on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and you know how to place those things, but not, verse 26, everyone that heareth these sayings of mine doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And, and many times we see it in, in Proverbs, we see it here, you, you have God's way and you have man's way, and man's way is described as foolish, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what secular humanism says. So it's wisdom or it's foolish. There are two ways, and it's based on what you think about Christ or what you don't think about Christ. John 3.36 shows us this, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Do you believe in the Son of God and all that he says that he is, or do you not? There's really, when you boil this down, there are two ways to view the world. This is where the war comes in, though, because for many Christians, we want to live in both worlds. We want to be able to pick and choose. And we want to make our own worldview that has a little bit of Bible, but a little bit of man's wisdom too. And God doesn't give us that option. There's two worldviews. There's two ways to look at it. And so there's Christians that want to claim a biblical worldview and yet act according to their own way. So we're in this ongoing battle, and it is a battle of our mind. And how we think and how we view life and are we going to view that through a humanistic viewpoint or are we going to view it through God's mind and thinking with a renewed mind that only comes from God's word. This is human logic versus biblical wisdom. It's two opposing ways to look at life and view this world. It's what Romans 12.2 tells us. And be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, as believers, we're not to conform our life to the world and the world's way of thinking. Oh, we are to renew our mind with God's words so that our life, who we are, it proves out God's will. And it proves out that God's will is true and it works and it is good and it is acceptable to him as, as, a, as we offer our lives a living sacrifice according to Romans 12 verse 1. And it's perfect. It's what our life is supposed to prove. But it only do that as if we view life through the lens of the Bible. But the world's way is tempting. But let me tell you what it's not. It's not good. It's not acceptable to God, and it's not perfect. What it is, is evil and deadly, even if and when it seems right. So we just read in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Even when it seems right, if you're using human logic and not biblical truth, you're going to end up in trouble. And when you dabble with the world and view life through the lens of the world, you need to know what you're dabbling in because you're dabbling in and with the enemy of God. Right? We, we know from Ephesians chapter 2, we have three enemies. We have the devil. And, and what's he do? He uses this world and the, this world system and everything it contains to tempt our flesh. Those are our three enemies. The devil, the world, and the flesh. And when, when you're dabbling in the world and viewing life through the lens of the world, 
You're doing it from the enemy's lens. James 4.4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world, listen, is the enemy of God. Not might be, is. So this is serious business. Because when you're dabbling in the world, you're telling everyone that you have a worldview that aligns with man's way, with secular humanism. And here's what it is exactly. You need to know. So I'm going to tell you, and I put this on your outline sheet. Secular humanism, or as the Bible puts it, man's way, is defined by the following four attributes or elements. Because when you look at worldview, I mean, some people will break it down into five attributes or elements, but, but, but really it's four. Um, but this is for all worldview. They, they break it down into attributes or elements, and then they break it down into the larger story, the narrative, which is what we're going to talk about next. But here's what man's way says. The view of God is atheistic. It's atheistic. Ultimately, man is God. So God can't be God. This is a secular humanism view of God. It's atheistic. The view of man, it's evolutionary. It's that man can better himself. And he can continue to improve by learning and, and gaining knowledge. And, and he's evolved over time anyway. And he can continue to evolve. That's what secular humanism says about man. The view of truth, it's relative. It's relative. It's not objective. We don't have an objective standard to know right and wrong, to know what is true, what is not. Again, what is true for you may not be true for me. I get to define my own truth. Truth is relative. It's not objective. And the view of morality is negotiated because Truth is relative. So you get to negotiate it. What you think is moral or amoral. Yeah, it's based on all these other factors. And when you're living in the world, listen to me. I mean, look at those words that you just wrote down in your paper. Because when you're living in the world, that is exactly what your life is saying. That is the message that you are sending about your belief system. You see, this is serious stuff. And you say, wait a second. Like, I, don't, I don't believe those things. I believe in God. I'm not an atheist. I don't believe in evolution. Okay. Maybe you don't. But that's how you are living. It's man's way or God's way. You don't have, the Bible never presents an option of writing the middle. In fact, what God says is, I would rather you be cold. Then lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. I, I would thou that were cold or, or, or warm, cold or hot. It's one of the options. It's one of the two. And we live. The thing about worldview, here's the interesting thing, is we live, and I'll say this multiple times, according to what we believe. Our life is a reflection of what we actually believe. You cannot hide that. So you say, I don't believe in those things. I'm not an atheist. Okay. But then you believe in a God that you get to define. You're not letting the Bible define who he is. You believe in, in man such as you get to, you get to create him. You, you believe in your own truth. That is what you believe. So examine your life. Examine what you believe. And understand how it is that you are living and what that points to. Because if you understand it, then maybe you can get out of it. And you can live according to what the Bible says and how it says we should live. So you need to understand those attributes, those elements of worldview. But more than that, you also need to understand the narrative. And the narrative is just the overarching story of worldview. And when it comes to narrative for any worldview, there are four primary questions. Again, some people have five. It's fine. But there are four primary questions that it has to answer that line up with the four elements. It just, it's just at a deeper level. And these are four questions. I put them on your outline sheet. You don't even have to fill in the blanks. I put them on your outline sheet. These are four questions that 
Every human being in every era has always asked and always will ask. Now, maybe not formally. Maybe they don't, you know, look in front of a mirror and say, who am I? You know, maybe not formally. But this is something everyone grapples with. And those four questions are, who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with the world? And by extension, what is wrong with me? And how can what is wrong be made right? And those are the four questions any worldview sets out to answer. And guess what? Shockingly, the Bible has a very clear and convincing answer for every one of those questions. And those answers define what a biblical worldview really is. And this is important because if you understand this, what we're going to finish out, what we're going to cover next, if you understand this in your heart and not just your head, it will change your entire being. And so hopefully you're still in Colossians chapter 1 because that's where we're going to find these answers. Now, you can find them throughout the Bible, by the way. You can find them in Genesis. We could have, we could have went to Genesis chapter 1. But they're, they're nice and succinct here in Colossians chapter 1. And again, as a Christian, we're, we're coming at this from a Christian perspective. If, you, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, um, then, then I'm, I'm not talking to you right now. I'm going to talk to you at the end. I'm going to talk to you later. But I'm talking to the believers in here, If you claim to be a child of God, one who has placed your faith in the finished work of Christ for salvation, then, then this is how you need to view your life. And your decisions and your actions ought to flow from this view. Again, we behave, we live according to what we believe. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So you need to understand what you believe and really ask yourself how that affects the way you live. And we're going to start with the first question, who am I? And again, we're looking at this from a biblical worldview perspective. So we're asking who you are as a Christian. So our first point is the person. And we see this in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. And there the Bible says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us to meet, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us, from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Okay, there's some deep stuff in here. All right, listen, from when God first made man, in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that that man, Adam, was made in the image and likeness of God. Right? You can, you can see that in Genesis chapter 1. But when sin entered into this world, back in Genesis chapter 3, that image was lost. And then according to Genesis 5-3, when you start to see the genealogies of Adam, every person born after the catastrophic event of Genesis chapter 3, every person that was born is born in Adam's image, that of a fallen sinner. So the entirety of the human race was born in Adam. But when we get saved, as described in the verses in Colossians chapter 1 that we just read, when we are delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son, when that happens, when we are born again, that image is restored. We move from being in Adam to in Christ. Colossians 3, verse 10 says, And have put on the new man, listen, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. So let me ask you a question. Whose image is that? Who's Colossians 1, 15 talking about? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And Colossians 3, 10, the image of him that created him. Who, who's being talked about there? It's Christ. That's who Paul is talking about. He's the firstborn of the Holy Spirit. And when we are placed in Him, we become a new creature too. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So listen. Something new happened. You've been born again in the image of God. The original image has been restored as a son of God. So what does that all mean? And how does, how does this answer the question of who am I? Because this is very important doctrinally. 
and from a worldview perspective. And here is what it means. You are nothing without Christ. You are nothing without Christ. Who are you? You are now the image of him as a son of God. So you left your life, your sinful criminal life, and you exchanged it for his when you accepted by a free will choice his offer of salvation. So Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, when he shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. So according to the Bible, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then Christ is your life. That means we are to live the life of Christ. We are, allow, we are to allow him to live through us. Why? Because we're dead. We don't have our life anymore. The very next verse in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Mortify therefore. Why? When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore. Your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, that old man is to be done away with. But too many times our life doesn't reflect our new image. It doesn't reflect Christ. And we allow that old man, that old nature to come back to life and to lead us. And when you do that, you need to know that you are living contrary to the worldview that you say you espouse. I'm defining world, a biblical worldview for you. We don't get to define The Bible gets to define it. So if you say you have a biblical worldview, then you need to line it up with what the Bible says. You do not get to define that for yourself. And the first part is, who am I? You're the image of Christ as a believer. So do you reflect that or do you not? This is critically important to understand who we are in Christ and how our life is just to be a reflection of him. But in order for it to be that way, you do have to understand it. You have to see your life as his and not your own. And let's just be honest this morning. This is a problem many of us, maybe even all of us, face because we kind of like our life. And so here's a problem. We see shining Christ's light and, and living Christ's life as something we do and not something we are. It's something we do because we're a Christian. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some things that shines Christ's light. But what you're saying by that is I'm also going to do some things that shine my own light. No, this is who we are. Who am I? I'm an image of Christ. I'm a son of God. I, I don't have my rights anymore. I gave them up. When I chose to enter in to a relationship with him. And we want to silo our lives. And we want to have our work life and our church life and our home life. No, there's one life. If you are a blood-bought, born-again Christian, you have one life. It's the life of Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I love by the faith. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, at the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you exchanged your old sinful life for his. And now he is to live through you. You have to let him do it. And when you understand that, then you're able to answer the second question of worldview, why am I here? Once you know who you are, that you're Christ, you're to live Christ's life. Okay, well then why am I here? What's the meaning of life? And this gets to the purpose. What's the purpose of life? So we saw the person, now we're going to look at the purpose. Look back at Colossians chapter 1, pick it up in verse 16. Speaking of Christ, as defined in verse 15, Paul says, For by him, by Christ, were all things created that are in heaven 
and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And this is pretty obvious. He's the creator of you and who you are. The answer to the first question is we bear his image. You're a new creature. And what we learn from this verse and these verses we just read is that all things were created by him and what? For him. We are to be for him. And, and how does that play out? How can we be for him? Only when he has the preeminence. When he has the preeminent position in our life because he is our life. And preeminence means first in rank and influence. It's only when we realize that he is before all things. Right? That's what it says in Colossians chapter 1. He is before all things. And you can get an understanding of really what that means by comparing Scripture with Scripture and tracing it back to where God started with the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. In verses 2 and 3 it says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? And the word before there, it, it, it really means more than ahead. He's not really saying, thou shalt have no other gods ahead of me with respect to order. He certainly is saying that, but he's saying way more than that. What before means is that verse is in my presence. In my presence or in front of. So God is saying, thou shalt have no other gods near me. You shall have no other gods in my presence. And it's the same context in Colossians. He, Christ is before everything. You see, he's all-consuming. And he's in front of everything, so nothing should be in front of him. So practically, this means that God shouldn't just be first place in your life. He should be the only place. There shouldn't be other places. And, and hear me, I'm not saying that you shouldn't view other areas of your life as important. Of course you should. Your family, this church, your job, all of it should be very important to you. And you can even order and place them if you want. But what I'm talking about is there shouldn't be any other places with respect to who it is you worship. And why you are here. You are here for him. And here's the purpose and the answer to why we are here. It's God's glory. We know this. We've talked about it a lot. It's God's glory. We're not here. We're not on this earth to just consume and enjoy. You're now an image bearer. The crowning glory of his creation. So we're here to bring him glory, period. You don't have to wonder why you are on this earth right now. That is it. That is the reason. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So let me ask you, is that how you live your life? When you answer the question, why am I here? Is it to glorify Him? Or is it to glorify yourself? And listen, if, if you think you are the center of the universe to the point that you can't look beyond yourself, for God's glory, and be compelled to live that life, then let me just remind you of a couple verses. Because Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of the heavens is the Lord thy, Lord's thy God, the earth also, and all that therein is. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. So let me ask you, like God asked Job in Job 38 verses 4 through 7. If you believe you're the center of the universe, where was thou when God laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Can you answer those questions? I sure can't. You see, this world and this life and the world to come, it's about him. It's about the creator. It's not about us, the creation. So let's look to him. Let's look beyond ourselves and see what it is that will bring him glory. Because if we don't, then we aren't living according to a biblical worldview. Again, I'm, I'm defining it for you. You don't get to pick and choose. What you believe dictates how you behave. 
So ask yourself the hard questions this morning if you need to. Do you adhere to a biblical worldview? And when it comes to bringing God's glory, there's a prescription for that. You don't even get to pick and choose how you do that. And understanding the prescription begins with answering the third question of worldview, which is what is wrong with the world and by extension, what is wrong with me? And so this gets to point number three, the problem. You see, there is a problem with this world. And there's a problem in our own lives. You don't have to get very far into your day to see that truth. And we see the problem in verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1 that says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. And you see the problem in the first two words. It's you. And it's me too, but Paul said you. But, but the fact is that God created his creation to worship him and to bring him glory. But something happened that alienated us from him and made us his enemies. And the cause was wicked words, or a little three-letter word, sin. That's the problem. We know this. The problem is sin. And through that sin, the entire human race became separated from God, including you, including me. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to what? His own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we'll get to the last part of that verse next. But, but the beginning explains what's wrong with the world. We've all turned to our own way. Again, it's God's way versus man's way. And secular humanism can't blame itself for what's wrong with the world. So what it explains is, is what's wrong with the world is insufficient education and insufficient government. Yeah, let's let, think on that one for a minute. More government's what we need. Whew. But it says the people are ignorant. And so the answer is education. It says they're innocent. Therefore, they need government to protect them. But according to the Bible, neither one of those is true. People are not ignorant and innocent. They are alienated and enemies. And we inherited that from the first Adam, which is why there needed to be a last Adam. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're not innocent, and they're not ignorant. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The problem is sin. It's just, we have a sin problem, and it's a very serious problem, because according to the Bible, sin always leads to death which is separation from Almighty God. For the wages of sin is death. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And guess what? Even for the Christian today, we're talking about a biblical worldview for Christian. The same thing is true of sin in our life. Now, if you're saved, if, if, if you are saved and living a life of sin, you'll not lose your salvation. We we know that. We are eternally secure if you're truly saved. But sin still separates us from God. And still, sin still brings death. Always. Maybe it's the death of a relationship. Maybe it's the death of peace. Maybe it's the death of fruitfulness. Maybe it's the death of all of those things. It'll be the death of something. So if we say we have a biblical worldview, we, then we must recognize that when we live in sin, we are the problem. And in those moments... When you're living in sin, that means you have to live your Christian life on your own because sin breaks fellowship with God. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And why is that? It's because God can't be around and entertain sin. Proverbs 28, 9 says, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. So if you want to truthfully live out a biblical worldview as a Christian, don't let yourself get into a place where you dwell in or live in sin. That, that's, that's contradictory. And if you are in that place, own it. Accept it. Accept responsibility. And don't make excuses for yourself. And own up to the consequences. Don't use your environment as an excuse. Don't use your upbringing as an excuse. Don't use past relationships as an excuse. Don't use anything as an excuse. 
According to Romans 1 that we read a second ago, lost people even are without excuse. So certainly sinning Christians are too. So take responsibility and tell the Lord, I'm, it's me. I messed up. I missed the mark. I need to be restored back to you. Pray like David prayed in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And restore that fellowship with him and get back to living a life that can live out the purpose of your biblical worldview. To bring him glory. And you can't do that while sinning. So don't be hypocritical about it. If you say you have a biblical worldview, then stop sinning. It's that simple. Grow up. Quit being selfish. Think of the Lord. Think of others. Get back to where you started with the Lord. And that brings us to the answer to the final question that worldviews set out to answer. How can what is wrong be made right? And this gives us the plan. This is our fourth point, the plan. Because none of these things caught God off guard. And he has a plan to fix all that's wrong. And we see that plan outlined back in Colossians chapter 1. Pick it back up in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. You see, the answer to what is wrong in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the answer to everything that's wrong. It's the gospel. Sin is the problem. The gospel is the solution. That was God's plan to make it right. Because through the gospel, the enemies of God can be brought to peace through the blood of his cross. We can be reconciled to him and be presented as holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, but only through Christ. Yes, Isaiah did say that all we like sheep have gone astray, but he went on to say that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> what a wonderful plan and solution that God provides for us. Because make no mistake about it, we cannot provide that solution on our own. No amount of education, and Lord knows no amount of government can fix that. Only Jesus can. Because there is no amount of education or government that can take away man's sin. Only the blood of Jesus. And how? How is that possible? It's possible because according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's what Christ did. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So parents, if you're a parent, you listen to me. All of you who claim to have a biblical worldview, let me ask you a question. What is your child's greatest need? What is your children's greatest need? Is it more information? Is it a scholarship so they can receive an education to get a good job? Is it more supervision? If you claim a biblical worldview, your answer has to be a resounding no. And therefore, your actions should follow. Because their greatest problem is not ignorance. It's not even lack of supervision. Your children's greatest need is a relationship with Jesus because their greatest problem is sin. So do you parent to that end? To bring them to a place of meeting Jesus for themselves and then nurturing the ongoing relationship with him? Or do you parent like education and sports and scholarships are their greatest need? Listen, this is a war. You need to be on the right side of it. Don't be lulled to sleep by the enemy's tactics. Because if you are, before you know it, you can be a Christian living practically as a secular humanist. Even an atheist. Where your life does not acknowledge in any way a creator and a savior. And if you stay on that path before you know it, you will end your life never living out the purpose God, God designed for you. By your creator. What a shame that would be. But listen, it's even worse than that. 
Because if this is truly a war, which it is, and if we're part of the army of God through the family of God, which we are, and assuming that's all true, when you don't live your life according to God's glory, when you don't behave and make decisions according to a biblical worldview, then listen to me very carefully. You're a traitor. Because you've been sent into enemy territory to give the answer to the problem of the world. To share the gospel and make disciples of Jesus Christ starting with your family. But if instead of fighting that fight, you've made friends with the world, and for all practical purposes are a secular humanist, then you're now fighting for the enemy. Do you see what's at stake? We're highly offended by United States citizens who are traitors and sell our secrets to other nations that hate us. And we should be, by the way. And probably even more than that, we are highly offended by those among us who we believe want to throw away our Constitution and make a new America that looks way more communist than a democratic republic. And we should be offended by that, by the way. But can't you see the spiritual reality and the spiritual parallel of those among us who want to throw away the Bible and live life however they want to live in a way that seems right to them but has nothing to do with God's way. If that's you, you are a traitor to the cause of Christ. And I say that because I love you and I want to help rescue you. Get back to sharing the gospel and making disciples and making the main thing the main thing of your life. That's the way God designed for us to give him glory. That's the only way we can fulfill our purpose on this earth. So don't miss it. Having a biblical worldview is of the utmost importance because what you believe dictates how you live and it dictates how you behave and what decisions you make for yourself and for your family. So reconcile these points in your head and live accordingly. Know who you are in Christ, that he is your life, that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, fulfill your purpose. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And you do that by recognizing the problem of sin in the world and sin in your own life. And you get it right with the Lord and you share the solution that you found with everyone you can. And when you do that, guess what? You're living the life of Christ, which brings him glory. And the cycle goes on and on and on, exactly the way God designed. And you can say without hesitation that you have a biblical worldview. But again, make no mistake about it. There's a war going on over which worldview you will espouse. Make the right choice.